Bible, please open it to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25. A husband and wife was out fishing one day, and the wife says to the husband, that is totally ridiculous. How is it ridiculous, he says, it just is. It's not ridiculous. It's a fact. Marriage is supposed to be a two-way street. But in all the years we've been married, you have never once left the toilet seat up for me, says the husband. Marriage is. Marriage is. That's the focus of our fall sermon series. And if you're not married, you may be wondering how you're going to benefit from such a series. You will benefit. Trust me, don't tune me out. We're going to look at marriage through three lenses. Creation, fall, redemption. And when you look at marriage through the lens of creation, then you see marriage is covenant. It's a covenant. And here I'm showing you what marriage was intended to be before the fall. That's what I'm showing you. What God intended marriage to be before Genesis 3. You see, I'm showing you God's authority over marriage. I'm showing you the standards that he has set in marriage. You see, the fall brought sin into the world, but the fall did not eliminate God's authority and his standards. I hope you know that. His authority and his standards still stand. The fall has made it almost impossible for us to live up to those standards and authority. Now, in terms of marriage, we see that at its inception, marriage was instituted by God and and given to man as a provision for his own good. Marriage was instituted by God, a provision for man's goodness so that man can have the have the companionship of his like opposite, companionship of a female. So marriage is between one man and one woman, period. And last week, we saw that the nature of marriage is covenant, in which spouses take covenant vows to be covenant spouses to each other. Now this week, we're going to look at the function of, of covenant spouses. Here's God's word. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And were not ashamed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your truth, Father, we have to always remind ourselves this is not the opinion of man. This is not the opinion of the village church. This is not something that I just came up with this week. But it's something that you spoke into existence. It's something that you have inspired through your servants. This is the very word of God. Your truth, your authority, and your standards that you have put forth. And as your people, those who say we have saving faith in you through Christ, then we submit ourselves to your standards, to your authority. And your spirit that lives in us, we can't do it without him. 
He has to be the one, Lord, to bend our hearts toward your word and apply it to our life. And so you know what we need today. You know what we need to hear today. And so I pray that you move in a mighty way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In a marriage covenant, covenant spouses function as one flesh. I know you're like, what? How is that even possible for two individual people to function as one? How is that possible? That's what we're going to talk about today. Covenant spouses, they function as one flesh by leaving something and cleaving to someone. You leave and you cleave. That's what it means to be one flesh and function as one flesh. So first we're going to talk about what it means to leave. Therefore a husband, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. That's what Moses says here. And these words in, in verses 24 and 25 are not spoken by Adam, but, but these are commentary given by Moses on what God had just instituted. God just instituted marriage. So Moses provided a little commentary by saying, Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother. The Hebrew word that's been translated to leave is talking about an action that's reoccurring. You don't just leave once, he's saying. You continue to leave something and someone behind. The point here is that covenant spouses must leave their father and mother's house once they get married. And this process of leaving is reoccurring. Now, all of us, all of you come from a family of origin, which is the family that you were born into or adopted into. It could be a two-parent home, a single-parent home, a grandparent home, a cohabitating home, and given the current state of our culture, a same-sex home. And that's the culture we live in. Spouses come from different family backgrounds, different ways of doing family, different ways of showing affection, different ways of discipline, different ways of doing holidays. You have different family traditions, different ways of spending vacation, different ways of doing life. Think about the family that you grew up in. All of us have been influenced both positively and negatively by it. But when you get married, you have to leave a lot of that stuff behind. Because if you don't, you're going to have issues in your marriage. This term for to leave, it can also mean to depart, to abandon, to lose, or to break free from. There are four ways covenant spouses must leave their parents' house. Four ways. First, you actually physically have to depart from their house. You're not going to get married and tell your spouse, well, you're going to go live with your mom and daddy, and I'm going to stay live with my mom and daddy, but we'll still be married, but we just live in different places. No, you depart and move together to start your new life together as husband and wife. You don't live apart from one another. You live together. Second, you have to break free and loosen from dependency upon your parents. This means your parents should not be the primary ones you run to when you are in need. You have to loosen your dependency there. They should not be the ones paying your bills, cleaning your house, and raising your kids. Now, I know there are circumstances that, that you're going to need your parents' help and, and need their assistance, but, they should not, but it should not be an expectation that once you get married, your parents should still take care of you. That shouldn't be an expectation. 
Third, you have to abandon family of origin nostalgia. What does that mean? It means when you say, well, that's the way my family's done it. Well, that's the way my mom and daddy used to do it, so that's the way my family's going to do it. That's the way my family spent Christmas and, and Thanksgiving. Well, that's the way we did vacations. That's the way my mama cooked dinner. That's the way my mama cooked dressing. That's the way my daddy did things around the house. So, well, my husband needs to do it the same way my daddy did it. Now, if you don't abandon that, what's going to happen in your marriage? You're going to have issues. Because your family and your marriage is not going to be the clone of your parents' marriage and your parents' family. You're going to start a new life with your husband or your wife. The place we struggle the most when it comes to leaving our parents' house is emotionally. We struggle leaving home emotionally. If your parents have so much emotional control over you to the point where you value their wishes and opinions and expectations over your spouses, then guess what? You ain't left home yet. You're still at home. Still at mama's and daddy's house. Emotionally. A frustrated mom wrote to dear Abby about her soon-to-be ex-son-in-law who decided after only eight months of marriage to her daughter, he no longer wanted to be married to her. In her letter, she writes, he would constantly tell her she made him miserable. He would allow his mother to ridicule and berate her over things about like her hair color and her, and her cooking. She goes on to say, I wonder what was his real motive in marrying my daughter. He shows no remorse, and he portrays himself as the victim for having married someone who couldn't get along with his mama. That husband has not left home. And that husband was married to his mama. Functionally. And it was his mom was his false spouse. And that was one of the things that destroyed his marriage. You see, a mama's boy who put his mama before his wife has not left home. He's still at home emotionally. A daddy's girl who puts her dad before her husband has not left home. I know one day in my daughter's heart I'm going to be number two. And that's right. It should be that way. It should be. If not, she's not going to have a good marriage. You leaving your parents' house is about changing priorities. Your priorities are now primarily with your spouse. It doesn't mean you abandon the relationship with your parents. It simply means that relationship is beneath the one with your spouse. To be honest, all other human relationships, even the ones with your kids, comes second to the one with your spouse. Because the problem with most Christian couples they put a relationship with their kids before their spouse. It shouldn't be that way. Kids' relationship comes second. Spouses. The relationship with your spouse comes first. That's top priority. And also comes the things like your job, sports, or whatever. Whatever's in your life comes second. Who or what are your false spouses? Who? Who is your spouse? Your false spouse. Trust me, your spouse knows if they're second in your heart. 
no one feels it more than them. Your spouse will know if they're number two. They are no. They feel it every day. They are no. They will know. Finally, the fourth way we have to leave home has to do with our mama and daddy issues. If you come from a broken family that was filled with abuse or abandonment or affairs or one that was all about controlling or just keeping up the appearances where you hide brokenness, then you can develop anger and resentment toward your parents, or at least to one of them. And if you hold on to it, then guess what? You ain't left home yet. If it still has control over you, you have not left home yet. And it will impact the way you relate to your spouse. It will. How do you leave it behind? You have to acknowledge it. Acknowledge it to your spouse. Take it to Jesus. Go to counseling if you have to. It's one of the ways you can love your spouse is dealing with past pain in your life because it will show up in your marriage. You self-deceive yourself. You think, that pain is not going to show up in my marriage. It will show up. It will show up. And so acknowledge it. Deal with it. Use your faith in Christ to help you get past it. And it will. he will come and help you. Part of being one flesh is being one flesh with your spouse is leaving behind anything that is a threat to the health of your marriage. Anything that's a threat to the health of your marriage. It ain't easy. None of this is easy. But that's where faith in Christ comes in. That's where faith in Christ is needed. And you both go there together. You spread it out before him. Say, Lord, these are our issues. These are our pains. This is how we're not functioning together. Please heal it. And you got to trust that he will. There's a part in our wedding ceremonies in which uh, the couple would light the unity candle. And this is what one person uh, says about this part of the wedding. He says, the two candles have been lit to represent both lives at this moment. They are two distinct lights, each capable of going their separate way. As you join in marriage, there is a merging of these two lights into one light. This is what the Lord meant when he said on this account, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. From now on, your thoughts shall be for each other rather than your individual selves. As you each take a candle and, and together light the center one, you would extinguish your own candle, thus letting the center candle represent the union of your lives into one flesh. As this one light cannot be divided, neither your lives shall be divided, but united in a testimony in a Christian home. You leave your father and mother's house, and you cleave and hold fast to your wife in one flesh. That's the second part of what it means to be one flesh. You cleave to your spouse. And there are different ways spouses try to function within marriage in our culture. You have the 50-50 function. Have you heard about that? Where you give 50%, then I give 50%, and then together it's 100%. So we're going to function that way. So all I want you to do is just give 50% of me, and I'm going to give 50% of me to you, and together it's 100%. So we're going to function that way in our marriage. Another way is you function on compatibility. So here spouses try to exist in harmony, all about ways in which we're compatible. So, so we're going to function that way. 
The third way is you function as soulmates, where you, where you have strong feelings of a deep affinity for each other. So it's all about functioning as soulmates. Now, cleaving and being one with your spouse, as the Bible talks about it, has nothing to do with those three things. This Hebrew term for a cleave, a whole fast, means you cling to, you stick to like glue. When Moses says you are to cleave to your spouse, he's saying you do that 100%, not 50%. You don't give half of yourself to your spouse. You give all you got. 100%. 100% of you. You hold nothing back. Of all the human relationships, there is only one where the two become one flesh. Think about that. You're not one flesh with your kids. You're not one flesh with your parents. You're not one flesh with your girlfriends and your boyfriends. You're one flesh with your spouse. Of all the human relationships, there is only one person you are one flesh with, your husband or your wife. God intended your spouse to be the most important human being in your life, the best companion of your life. Do you realize that? It's no longer I, me, mine. But it's we, us, and ours, and all things going forward. You cleave to one another sacrificially. Sacrificially. That's what it means. Sacrificially. And that's hard. It ain't easy. Who are you cleaving to? Husbands? Wives, who are you cleaving to? If you're not your spouse, then who? Are you cleaving to your freedom, job, money, other people, a former lifestyle, sports? One author says, every marriage problem stems from either a failure to leave or a failure to cleave. All marriage problems stem from either a failure to leave or a failure to cleave. Spouses must cleave to one another emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, and physically. You also cleave to one another in faithfulness, in affection, in loyalty, in love, and in commitment. And you grow in doing these things. It ain't going to happen once you get back from your honeymoon. You grow in doing these things. not going to happen overnight. The work begins after the honeymoon. The Hebrew term for cleave also means to catch by pursuit or to pursue hard, to stick with or to stick to. Husbands, are you still pursuing hard after your bride? Like the day you did before you married her, before the kids came. Are you pursuing hard after her still? Because you know, guys, once we get the catch, you know, we like, we get lazy. Well, I already got her. What do I still got to do these things for? You are still to pursue hard after your woman. Emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, and physically. Are you pursuing? Wives, are you still sticking by your man? Like the day you did 
before you got married and before the kids came? Are you still sticking with him? Or have you given up on him? Are you still sticking with him emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, and physically? Verse 25 says, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. You see, Adam and Eve, before the fall, they cleaved to one another without issue, without fear, and with no shame. See, we don't understand that because we live east of Eden. This was the only perfect marriage ever was this one here. And so them being negative, that's, that's, them, that's symbolic to saying they were innocent, that they were totally exposed and open to one another without any shame, no secrets, no mask, complete honesty, complete transparency. We're like, man, that's awesome. And it was. They were vulnerable to one another. And they didn't shame one another in the process. And it's scary for us. But in this first marriage, it was awesome. Because they were fully known, fully accepted, without fear of being put to shame. Do you know your spouse's love language? Is it words of affirmation? Quality time? Receiving gifts, acts of service, or physical touch. Which is it? Now, if you don't know it, that means y'all need to have a conversation tonight. Because once you know what their love language is, then then guess what the logical thing should be? Well, I need to do that to show her that I love her. So what is it? Now, my head is down in the clouds. I realize marriage is hard and it can be bloody. And it's not easy functioning as one flesh. And we're going to talk about that. That's coming. That's coming. I'm showing you what marriage was intended to be before the fall. Why? Because those standards did not go away. Because sin is in the world. They're still there. The standards still stand. We are still to be one flesh. Now for those of you who are not married, this has implications for you particularly when it comes to how Christians are supposed to date. You see, Christians don't date non-Christians. And Christians don't marry non-Christians. That's called unequally yoked. Second, Christians must date with intention and with caution. By intent, I mean you're not, you're just not, you want the relationship to go somewhere. And by caution, I meant, mean you have to safeguard over certain areas of your life. For example... Christian couples who, who are dating need to exercise caution with how deep you go spiritually with one another. Because you don't want to end up being spiritually with one with someone who's not your spouse. Why? You've got to exercise caution on how deep you're going to go spiritually with one another when you're just dating. You don't want to be spiritually one with someone who's not your spouse. Next, Christians need to strive not to be physically physically intimate before marriage. And I'm using that phrase because some of you have not had to talk with your kids yet. You don't want to become physically one with someone who is not your wife or husband. Physical intimacy is beautiful in the context of marriage. Outside of marriage, it's sin. Period. I don't care how you justify it. Sin. Also, be careful how you use the words I love you while dating. 
this phrase in our culture is used so much that it's almost empty phrase. But to me, I believe those words carry a lot of meaning. When my kid and I were dating, we never used those words at all. The first time I told her I love her was when I put the ring in her hand. Because to me, when I say those words, it involves I'm committing something to you. I'm committing my life to you. So men, if you ain't ready to put a ring on the finger, then don't use those words. And same for you ladies. If you ain't ready to commit on that level, then don't use those words. Why become emotionally one with someone who is not your spouse? That's my point. Why? Why do it? Christians date with intention and with caution. When you go to weddings or to any kind of um, event, there are uh, usually reserved seats there. And anyone just can't sit in those reserved seats. At weddings, don't know there's reserved seating for parents, for grandparents, and, and other family members. Now, if you sit in those reserved seats, now what usually happens? The usher will come over and politely ask you to move. You see, there are certain parts of you that is only reserved for your spouse. And you have to guard and protect those parts. When it comes to physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual oneness and intimacy, those are reserved seats in your life. Reserved seats. They're not open for just anyone or anything. It's reserved seat for one. If it's a man, it's your wife. For a woman, it's your husband. If anyone or anything else is in those seats, then you need to usher them out politely but forcefully. Forcefully. Ladies, the ring on your finger should communicate to every other man that all of you is reserved for a particular man, and he's not him. Guys, the ring on your finger should communicate to every other woman that you are reserved for one particular woman, and she is not her. It's your responsibility to guard and to protect those seats, and it's your spouse's responsibility to sacrificially sit in those seats. Sacrificially sit there. That's your responsibility, husbands, whatever it takes. You sit in those seats for your wife, and she sit in those seats for you. Covenant spouses function as one flesh and covenant marriage. Both of you leave and you cleave sacrificially to each other. Let us pray. Father God, none of these things are easy to do. That's why it takes faith in Christ and trusting in him to help us to be the spouses that we need to be for one another. The world is filled with temptations, and we all have sin in our life. We all have issues in our life. And so, Father, we need you to help us be the spouses we need to be for one another. And we trust in you to do that. We have to rely on our faith, Lord, to do that. And so, Father, I pray and continue to pray for the marriages in our churches that um, you bless them. 
and sustain them. And I pray for those who are not married and they want to be married, that you will meet them, Lord, and if they're lonely and, and help them to trust you to provide. And that you will meet us where we truly are, Lord. You know what we need, Father. You know what we need. And we depend upon you desperately to meet those needs. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Will you please stand as we close?